Hi, I'm Eric Newcomer, author, reporter of Newcomer. <laughs> the podcast that you're listening to is called Newcomer. It's all about startups and venture capital inside the business of technology, launching a YouTube Welcome. channel, relaunching the podcast. You can find it Apple, Spotify, newcomer.co, wherever you find your podcast, you can listen, follow along on the Substack. Very excited for my first guest. I think it delivers on the insider proposition, PayPal Mafia member, Microsoft board member, LinkedIn co-founder, Greylock investor. If you haven't guessed, that's Reed Hoffman. What did we talk about? You can guess it. Artificial intelligence. He just stepped off the board of OpenAI. I asked him about that. We talked about AI sentience, whether it, when it will have feelings, what we should do about it if it has feelings, some deep cut philosophy references, but we also talked about Amazon, Microsoft, Google, the business of cloud computing and how that's affected by AI. I asked him about his PayPal mafia members, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, what they were thinking. We talked about Joe Biden. Reed is a Democratic mega donor. So I asked him about the state of his donating to the Democratic Party. I think it's a great episode. I, I really enjoyed it. I hope he comes back on. Before we go to the episode, we have a word from Vanta. Thank you for being our launch sponsor for the Newcomer Podcast. Newcomer is brought to you by Vanta. To close and grow major customers, you have to earn trust. But demonstrating your security and compliance can be time-consuming, tedious, and expensive until you use Vanta. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for the most sought-after security and privacy standards. Save time and money on compliance with Vanta's enterprise-ready trust management platform. For a limited time, newcomer listeners get $1,000 off Vanta. Go to vanta.com slash newcomer to get started. Here's the episode. Reed, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm very excited for this conversation you know, I'm getting ready for my own AI conference at the end of this month. So hopefully this is sort of a prep. <laughs> By the end of this conversation, we'll all be super smart and ready for that. You know, AI will be at the heart of it. AGI, generative AI. Like, I feel like there have been so many rounds of sort of AI as sort of the buzzword of the day. This clearly seems the hottest. When did you get into to this moment of it? I mean, obviously, you just stepped off the OpenAI board. You were on that board. Like, when did you start to see this movement that we're experiencing right now coming? Well, it's funny because my undergraduate major was artificial intelligence and cognitive science. So <laughs> I've, I've been uh, around the hoop for multiple waves for a long time. And I think this kicked off actually, in fact, with a dinner with Elon Musk years ago where because, you know, about you know, 10-ish years ago, Elon and I would have dinner about once a quarter and he's like, well, are you paying attention to this AI stuff? And I'm like, well, I, I majored in it and I know about the stuff. He's like, no, you, you need to get back involved. And I'm right. like, all right, you know, sure. This is part of how I operate is people I, you know, smart people from my network tell me things and I go and do things. And so I dug into it and I'm like, oh, yes, we have another wave coming. And this was probably about seven or eight years ago when I saw the beginning of the, the wave or the seismic event starting. Maybe it was a seismic event out at sea. And I was like, okay, there's going to be a tsunami here and we should start getting ready because the tsunami is actually going to be amazingly great and interesting. Was that just one-to-one -one with you and Elon? Or that was yeah, sort of a yeah, yeah. And that, and that is that the beginning of OpenAI? OpenAI is later. 
What I did is I kind of then and went and made connections with the kind of the heads of every AI lab and every major company because I concluded that I thought that the AI revolution will be primarily driven by large companies initially because of the scale compute requirements. And so, you know, talked to Demis Hassabis, met Mustafa Suleiman, talked to Jan LeCun, talked to Jeff Dean, you know, all these kind of folks and kind of, you know, built all that. And then it was later in conversations with Sam and Elon that I said, look, we need to do something that's a pro-humanity, kind of not just commercial effort. And my price for participation, because I thought it was a great idea, but my price for participation was to ask Elon to stop saying the word robocalypse, because I thought that the problem was, is that it's very catchy and it evokes fear. And actually, in fact, one of the things that I think about this whole area is that it's so much more interesting and has so much amazing opportunity for humanity, a little bit like, I don't know if you saw the Atlantic article I wrote, that we evolve ourselves through technology. Yeah. And I'm you know, going to be doing some writings around describing AI as augmented intelligence versus artificial intelligence. And I wanted to kind of build that positive, optimistic case that I think is the higher probability that I think we can shape towards and so forth. So I was like, okay, I'm in, but no more robocalypse. <laughs> I appreciate as the ultimate sort of network person that you tell the story through people. I always appreciate when the origin stories of technology actually come through the human beings. With Elon in particular, I'm sort of confused by his position because it seems like he's very afraid of AI. And if that's the case, why would you want to like do anything to get the ball rolling down the hill? Like, isn't there a sort of just like, stay away from it, man, if you think it's so bad? Or like, how do you see his thinking? I'm sure it's evolved over time. Well, I think his instinct for the good and the challenging of this is he tends to think AI will only be good if I'm the one who's in control. <laughs> A dangerous sort of, uh, yeah. Yeah, this is actually somewhat replete within the modern AI field. Not everybody. And Elon is a public enough figure that I think, you know, making this comment of him is not talking out of school. Other people would. There's a surprising number of messiah complexes in the field of AI. And it's the, I am the one who must bring this, you know, Prometheus, you know, the fire to humanity. And right. you're like, okay, I kind of think it should be us <laughs> versus an individual. Now, right. us can't be 8 billion people, us as a small group, but I think more or less you see the folks who are steering with a moral compass try to say, how do I get at least 10 to 15 people beyond myself with their hands on the steering wheel in deep conversations in order to make sure you get there? And then let's make sure that we're having the conversations with the right communities. Like if you say, well, is this going to you know institutionalize ongoing you know, power structures or racial bias, or something else. Well, we're talking to the people to make sure that we're going to uh, minimize that, especially over time, and navigate it as a real issue. And so that's the kind of anti-Messiah complex, which is more or less the efforts that I tend to get involved in. Right. At least sort of oligarchy yes. <laughs> of AI control instead of just dictatorship of it. Right? Well, yeah. And it depends a little bit, even on oligarchy. Look, Things are built by small numbers of people. It's just a fact, right. right? Like there aren't more than, you know, a couple of founders, maybe maximum five in any particular thing. There's reasons why when you have a construction project, you have a head of construction, right, <laughs> right, et cetera. The important thing is to make sure that like that's why you have – why you have a CEO, you have a board of directors. That's why you have – you know, you say, well, do we have the right thing where a person – 
is accountable to a broader group, and that broader group feels their governance responsibility seriously. So oligarchy is a is a I know, is, it's a charged word. It's a charged word, and I there's I, a logic to it. I'm yeah. not I'm not using it to say it doesn't make sense that you want yeah. people to really understand it yeah. around it. I mean, specifically with OpenAI. I mean, you just stepped off the board. You're also on the board of Microsoft, which is obviously a very significant player in this future. I mean, it's open. I get a little frustrated with the open and open AI because I feel like there's a lot that I don't understand. I'm like, maybe they should change the name a little bit, but is it still a charity in your mind? I mean, it's obviously it's raised from Tiger Global, the ultimate profit maker. Like how should we think about the sort of core ambitions of open AI? One, the board I was on is a 501c3. And they've been very diligent about making sure that all of the controls, including for the subsidiary company, are from the 501c3 and diligent to its mission, which is staffed by people on the 501c3 board with the responsibilities of being on a 501c3 board, which is being of service to the mission, not doing you know private inurement and you know other kinds of things. And so I actually think it is fundamentally still a 501c3. The, the challenge is if you kind of say – you look at this and say, well – in order to be a successful player in the modern scale AI, you need to have billions of dollars to compute. Where do you get those billions of dollars? Because you know the foundations and the philanthropy industry is generally speaking bad at tech and bad at anything other than little tiny checks in tech. And so you say, well, right. it's really important to do this. So part of what I think you know Sam and that group of folks came up with this kind of clever thing was to say, well, look, we're about beneficial AI. We're about AI for humanity. We're about making, and I'll make a comment on open in a second, but we're going to generate some commercially valuable things. What if we struck a commercial deal so you can have the commercial things or you can share the commercial things, you invest in us in order to do this, and then we make sure that the AI has the right characteristics. And then the open, you know, all short names have, you know, <laughs> some, you know, simplicities to them. Yeah. The idea is open to the world in terms of being able to use it and benefit from it doesn't mean the same thing as open source because AI is actually one of those things where opening where you could do open source, you could actually be creating something dangerous. As a modern example, last year, OpenAI deliberately, like Dolly 2 was ready four months before it went out. I know because I was playing with it. They did the four months to do safety training and the kind of safety training is well, let's make sure that individuals can't be libeled. Let's make sure you can't create as best we can child sexual material. Let's make sure you can't do revenge porn. Right. And we'll serve it through the API and we'll make it unchangeable in that. And then the open and source people come out and they go, Stability. do right. whatever you want. <laughs> and then, <laughs> right. wow, you get all this crazy, you know, terrible stuff. And that's part of like, so open is openness of availability, but still with safety and still with, kind of call it the pro-human controls. And that's part of what open AI means in this context. I wrote in sort of a mini essay in the newsletter about tech fatalism. And it fits into your sort of messiah complex that you're talking about, where if I'm a young or new startup entrepreneur, it's like, this is my moment. If I hold back, you know, there's a sense that somebody else is going to do it too. This isn't necessarily research. Some of the tools are findable. So I need to do it if somebody's going to it's easy if you're sitting your own personhood to say, I'm better than that guy. Even if I have questions about it, I should do it. So that I think we see that over and over again. Obviously, the stakes with AI, I think we'd both agree, 
are much larger. On the other hand, with AI, there's actually, in my view, been a little bit more restraint. I mean, Google has been a little slower. Facebook seems a little worried. Like, I don't know. How do you, do you agree with that sort of view of tech fatalism? What do we, is there anything to be done about it? Or it's just sort of, if it's possible, it's going to happen. So the best team should do it. Or, or how do you think about that sense of inevitability on if it's possible, it'll be built? Well, one thing is you like edgy words. So what you describe as tech fatalism, I might say is something more like tech inevitability or tech destiny. And part of it is what I guess what I would say is, like, for example, we are now in a AI moment in era. There's global competition for it. It's scale compute. It's not something that even somebody like a Google or someone else can kind of have any kind of real ball control on. But the way I look at it is, hey, look, there's there's utopic outcomes and dystopic outcomes, and it's within our control to steer it, and even to steer it at speed, even under competition. Because, for example, obviously the general discourse within media is, oh, my God, what's happening with the data and what's going to happen with bias and what's going to happen with crazy conversations with Bing chat and right. all the rest of this stuff. And you're like, well, what am I obsessed about? I'm obsessed about the fact that I have line of sight to an AI tutor and an AI doctor on every cell phone. Right. And think about if you delay that, whatever number of years you delay that, what your human cost is of right. delaying that. Right. And it's like, how do we get that? And like, for example, people say, well, the real issue is that, you know, a not completely trained, you know, Bing chat model is going to go off the rails and have a drunken cocktail party conversation right. because it's provoked to do so and can't run away right. from the person who's provoking right. it. Right. And you say, well, is that the real issue or is the real issue, let's make sure that as many people as we can have access to that AI doctor, right. have access to that AI tutor. Not only, you know, because obviously technology, because it's expensive, initially benefits right. elites and people who are rich. And by the way, that's the natural way of how our capitalist system and all the rest works. But right. let's try to get it to everyone else as quickly as possible. Right. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. So I don't want any of my sort of uh, cynical tone. I agree yeah. that it's like, oh, my God, this is urgent. I don't extend it you know i think you're sort of referencing maybe the sydney situation yes. where you have kevin roos in the new york times you know communicating with bing's version of chat gpt and sort of finding this character who's sort of goes by sydney from the origin story and I, ben thompson sort of had a similar experience and i would almost say it's sad for the world to be deprived of that too you know there's like a certain paranoia it's like oh i want to meet this sort of seemingly intelligent character i don't know what do you make of that whole episode i mean smart tech writers really latched onto this as something that they found moving. I don't know. Is there anything you take away from that saga? And do you think we'll see those sort of, I don't know, intelligent characters again? Well, for sure, because I think 2023 will be at least the first year of the so-called chatbot, not just yeah. because of ChatGPT. And I think that we will have a bunch of different chatbots. Um, I think we'll have chatbots that are there to be you know, entertainment companions, witty dialogue participants. Well, I think we'll have chatbots that are there to be information, like Insta Wikipedia kind of things. I think we'll have chatbots that are there to just have someone to talk to, <laughs> right? So I think there'll be a whole whole range of things. So I think we will have all that experience. And I think part of the thing is to say, look, what are the parameters by which you should say the bots should absolutely not do X, and it's fine if these people want a bot that's like, you know, smack talking and these people want something that has, you know, goes, oh, heck, <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> right. And 
fine. You know, like what's what's the range of that? And obviously children get in the mix and and the questions around things that we already encounter a lot with search, which is like, oh, we worry about, you know, areas of, well, could a chatbot enable self-harm in a way that would be really bad? Right. Let's really try to make sure that someone who's depressed doesn't figure out a way to harm themselves, either with search or with chatbots. Because there is psychologically persuasive. So it's not just the information provided. It's yeah. the sense that they might be like walking you towards something. Yeah, and they are. Even on this less is, serious. This stuff, is the thing that's you know? amazing. And it's part of the reason why like everyone should have some interaction with these is like in some emotional, tangible way, we are really passing the Turing test. This is the thing that I had visibility on, you know, a few years ago because I was like, okay, actually, in fact, because we kind of judge you know, intelligence and sentience, like the Google engineers, like it, I asked if it was conscious and it said it was because we use language as a way of doing that. Right. And you're like, well, but look, that tells you that your language use is not quite, quite fully there. And because, you know, part of what's really amazing about hallucinations, and I'm probably going to do a fireside chat bots with the gray matter thing on hallucinations, maybe later this week, where you know, the hallucination is, on one hand, it says this amazingly accurate, wonderful thing, very persuasively. Right. And then it says this other thing really persuasively that's right. total fiction. Right. <laughs> right. And you're like, wow, you sound very persuasive in both cases, but that one's true and that one's fiction. And that's part of the reason why, like, I kind of go back to the augmented intelligence and all the things that I see going on with this 2023 year right. is much less replacement and much more augmentation. It's not zero replacement. But it's much more augmentation in terms of how this plays. And that right. is super exciting. Yeah. I mean, to some degree, it, it reflects sort of the weakness in human beings' own abilities to, to read what's happening. You know, ahead of this interview, I was talking to the sort of the publicly available chat GPT. I don't know if you saw. I was, you know, asking it for questions. And I felt like it delivered a very reasonable set of questions. You know, you've written about blitz scaling. So it's like, let's ask about that. It's... You know, ask in the context of Microsoft. But when I was like, you know, have you have you ever watched Joe Rogan? Have you ever been on a podcast? Sometimes maybe you should have a long sort of you should have a statement like I'm doing right now where I sort of have some things I'm saying. Then I ask a question. Other times it should be short and sweet. Sometimes it, you know, annoys you and says oligarchy, you know, it, like explaining to the to the chatbot like, oh, you can't just ask like a list of like straightforward questions and like it, it felt like it didn't really even get that. And I get that we're starting to have a conversation now with companies like Jasper, where it's almost like the language prompting itself. I think Sam Altman was maybe saying it's like almost a form of plain language, like coding, because you have mm. to figure out how to get what you want out of them. And maybe it was just my failure to explain it. But I don't know. As a journalist replacing questions, I didn't find the current model of chat GPT sort of really capable of. No, that's actually one of the things on ChatGPT I find is that, like, for example, you ask what questions ask Reid Hoffman in a podcast interview, and you'll get some right. generic ones. It'll say, like, well, right. what's going on with new technologies like AI and right. and what's going on in Silicon Valley? And, you know, and, and right. you're like, okay, sure. But those aren't the right. really interesting questions. That's not the, right. what makes me a great journalist, which is right. kind of a, a lens to something that people can learn from. And and that will evolve and change. That will get better. But that's, again, one of the reasons why I think it's a people plus machine. Because, yeah. like, for example, like, if I were to say, hey, what should I ask Eric about? Or what should I talk to Eric about? And go in and give me some generic stuff. Now, if I said, oh, give me a briefing on UN governance systems as they <laughs> apply to AI. 
right. because I want to be able to talk about this. I didn't do this, but then, then it would give me a kind of a quick Wikipedia briefing, and that would make my conversation more interesting. Right. And I might be able right. to ask a question about the governance system or something, you know, as a way of doing it. And so, and that's what I is I think why the combo is so great. And that's what we should be aiming towards. It isn't to say, by the way, sometimes like replacement is a good thing. Like, for example, you go to autonomous vehicles and say, hey, look, if we could wave a wand and every car on the road today would be an autonomous vehicle, right. we'd probably save, we'd probably go from 40,000 deaths in the U.S. per, you know, uh, year to, you know, maybe 1,000 or 2,000. Yeah. And you're like, you're saving 38,000 lives a year in doing right. this. It's a good thing. Um, and, you know, it will have positive effect on on gridlocks and therefore climate change and all the rest of the stuff. And you go, okay, that replacement, yes, we have to navigate truck jobs and all the rest, but that replacement's good. Right. But I think a lot of it is going to end up being, you know, kind of uh, various forms of amplification. Like if you get to journalists, you go, oh, it'll help me ask, figure out which interesting questions to ask, not because it'll just go, here, here's your script line to ask a question, but it, you can get like better information to prep your thinking on it. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up like the self-driving car case. And you're, are you still on the board of Aurora? I am. You very, yep. Yeah. You know, I covered Uber, so mm. I've been in there. I was in their self-driving cars very early mm. and they made a lot of promises. Mm. Lyft made a lot of promises. Mm. I mean, I feel like part of my excitement about this sort of generative AI movement is that it feels like it doesn't require completeness in the same way that self-driving cars hmm. do, you know, and that, that that's been a barrier to self-driving cars. On the flip side, you know, sometimes we sort of wave away, oh, the inaccuracy, and then we sort of imagine it. I think that's what we were sort of talking about earlier. You imagine it in some of the completeness that could come. So I guess the question here is just, do you think this sort of like what I'm calling the completeness problem, I guess, just the idea that it needs to be sort of fully capable will be an issue with the large language models? Or do you think think it is? I mean, you have this sort of augmented model mm. where it like it, it could sort of stop now and still be extremely useful to much of society. One, I think it could stop now and be extremely useful. You know, I, I've got line of sight on current technology for a tutor, for a doctor, for a bunch of other stuff. One of the things my partner, Sam Motamedi, and I wrote last year was that within five years, there's going to be a co-pilot for every profession. And the way to think about that is, what do professionals do? They process information. They take some kind of action. Sometimes that's generating other information. Just like you see with you know Microsoft's Copilot product for engineers and what you can see happening with Dolly and other image generation for graphic designers, you'll see this for every professional that there will be a co-pilot on today's technology that can be right. built that's, that's really amazing. I do think that as you continue to make progress, you can potentially make them even more amazing because you know part of what happened when you move from, you know, GBD3 to 3.5, which is all chat GBT, is all of a sudden it can write sonnets, right? Right. You didn't really know that it was going to be able to write sonnets, right? And, right? and how that comes out. And by the way, that's giving people superpowers. Most people, including myself, I mean, look, I could write a sonnet if you gave me a couple of days <laughs> right? And a, and a lot of coffee and a lot of right. to, to, to really try. But or you wouldn't. But you wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> but now I can go, oh, you know, I'd like to to um, write a sonnet about my friend Sam Altman and right. I can go down and I can sit there and I can kind of type, you know, da -da -da, and I can generate, well, I don't like that one. Oh, but that, I like this one, you know, and da -da -da, and, and that, that gives you superpowers. I mean, think about what you can do for, you know, kind of writing a whole variety of things with that. And I think the more and more completeness is the word you were using 
is I think also a powerful thing, even though what we have right now is amazing. Is GPT-4 a big improvement or like what have you, I assume you've seen a fair bit of unreleased stuff. Like how hyped should we be about the improvement level? I have. I'm not really allowed to to say very much about it because, you know, part of the responsibilities of former board members and confidentiality side. But I do think that it will be a nice, I think people will look at it and go, oh, that's cool. And and right. it will be another iteration, another thing where is as 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 amazing as ChatGPT has, and obviously that's kind of in the last few months has kind of taken the world by storm with like opening up this 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 vista of imagination and so forth. I think GPT four will be another step forward where people will go, oh, that's that that's another cool thing. I think you know can't be more specific than that, but I think it is a you know watch this space because it'll be cool. Throughout this conversation, we've danced around this sort of artificial general intelligence mm. question. I mean, starting with the discussion of Elon and the creation of eventually OpenAI. I'm curious how close you think we are with AGI and, you know, this idea of a sort of, I mean, people define it so many different ways. You know, it's more sophisticated than humans in some tasks, all, you know, many tasks, whatever. Do you think we're far from that or how do you see that playing out? Personally, amongst a lot of the people who are in the field, I'm probably on the we're much further than we think stage. Now, hmm. some of that's because I've lived through this before with my undergraduate degree and the, you know, the pattern generally is, oh my God, we've gotten this computer to do this amazing thing that we thought was formerly the province of only these cognitive, you know, kind of human beings. And it could do that. So then, by the way, in 10 years, it'll be solving new science problems like fusion and all the rest. And, you know, if you go back to the 70s, you saw the same dialogue. I mean, it's an ongoing thing. Now, we do have a more amazing set of cognitive capabilities than we did before. And there are some reasons to argue that it could be, you know, in a decade or two, because you say, well, but actually, in fact, uh, you know, these large language models can enable coding and that coding can, can then be self-reflective uh, and generative and that can then make something go. But like, for example, when I look at the coding and how that works right now, it doesn't generate the kind of code that's like, oh, that's amazing right. new code. It helps with the, oh, I want to do a parser for quicksort, <laughs> right? You know, like that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, <laughs> right. that's great. Oh, you know, or a systems integration use of an API or calling in a, a, an API for a spell checker or whatever. You know, it's, like, it's really helpful stuff in engineers, but it's not like, oh my God, it's now inventing the new, um, you know, kind of uh, training of large scale models techniques. And so I think even some of the great optimists will tell you, of the great like believers that it will be soon, is like, there's one major invention. And the thing is, once you get to one major invention, is that one major invention? Is that three major inventions? Is it 10 major inventions? Like, I think we are, we are some number of major inventions away. I don't, I certainly don't think it's impossible to get there. Sorry, the major inventions are us human beings build, building yes. things into the system. Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. Like, for example, you know, can it do, like, for example, a classic, critique of a lot of large language models is can it do common sense reasoning right and you know gary marcus is very loud exactly on subject. right exactly and um and you know the short answer right now is large language models are approximating common sense reasoning now they're doing right. it in a powerful and interesting enough way that you're like well but you know um that's pretty useful <laughs> it's pretty helpful about what it's doing right. but i i agree that it's not yet doing all of that and also you get problems like you know what are called one-shot learning. Can you learn from one instance of it? Because currently the training requires lots and lots of compute processing over data or in self-play. Can you 
<clears throat> have an accurate memory store that you update. Like, for example, you say, oh, now fact X has happened, <laughs> right? Now you recontinue your, your entire world based on fact X. Yeah. Like, there's a bunch of this stuff that all go. And the question is, is that one major invention? Is that, you know, five major inventions? And by the way, major inventions are major inventions. Even all the amazing stuff we've done over the last five to 10 years, major inventions are major inventions. So two things on the AGI. One. I tend to think it's further than most people think. And I don't know if that further is it's 10 years versus five or 20 years versus 10 or 50 years versus 20. I don't, I don't really know that. In is. your lifetime, do you think? It's possible, although I don't know. So it's, it's really I don't know. But let me give two other lenses, I think, on the AGI question. Because the other thing that people tend to do is they tend to go, there's like this AI, which is technique and machine learning, and it's totally just great. It's augmented intelligence. And then there's AGI, and who knows what happens with AGI. And you say, well, first is AGI is a whole range of possible things. Like what if you said, hey, I can build something that's the equivalent of a decent engineer or a decent doctor, but to run it costs me $200 an hour. Hmm. And I have AGI. It does it, <laughs> right? Right. But it's $200 an hour. And you're like, okay, well, that's cool. And that means we can – we can get as many of them as we need, but it's inexpensive. And so it isn't like all of a sudden, you know, Terminator or, you know, or right. inventing fusion or something. Like that is AGI or a potential version of AGI. So what is AGI is the squishy thing that people then go, and now magic. The second thing is the way that I've looked at the progress in the last mm, five to eight years is we're building a set of iteratively better savants. Right. right. It's just like the, the, the chess player was a savant. And the savants are interestingly different. Now, when does savant become a general intelligence? And when might savant become a general super intelligence? I don't know. It's obviously a super intelligence already in some ways. Like, for example, I wouldn't want to try to play Go against it and win, <laughs> try to win. Right. It's a super intelligence right. when it comes to Go. <laughs> right. But like, okay, that's great. Because in our perspective, having some right. savants like this that are super intelligence is really helpful to us. So the whole AGI discussion, I think, tends to go a little bit Hollywood-esque. You know, it's right. the Terminator. I mean, there, there is, there's <laughs> a sort of argument that could be made. I mean, you know, humans are very human-centric about our beliefs and our intelligence, right? We don't have a theory of mind for, like, other animals. It's very hard for us to prove that other species, you know, have some experience of consciousness, like qualia or whatever. <laughs> So it's very philosophically it, good, good use of a term, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I studied philosophy, <laughs> yes. though I've forgotten more than I remember. But, um, you know, I mean, the we'll question still, is just, you know, someday we'll figure out what it's like to be a bat. Probably not this year. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> is that that's Nagel? Yes, that's or, Nagel. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the machine, if the machine's better than me at chess and go there, there is a level of like, oh, here I am saying it doesn't have an experience, but it's so much smarter than me in certain domains. The question is just like. It seems like humans are not capable of seeing what it's like to be a bat. So will we ever really be able to sort of convince ourselves that there's something that it's like to be um, an AGI system? Well, I think the answer is yes, but it will require a bunch of sophistication. Like one of the things I think is really interesting as we de-anthropomorphize the world a little bit, and I think some of this machine intelligence stuff will enable to do that is – well, what does it mean to understand X or know X or experience X or have qualia or whatever else? Right. And right now what we do is we say, well, it's all some kind of shadowy image from being human. So we tend to undercount 
like animals intelligence and people tend to be surprised like look you know some animals mate for life and everything else they clearly have a theory of the world and it's clearly stuff we're doing we go oh they don't have the same kind of <laughs> consciousness we do right. and you're like well they certainly don't have the same kind of consciousness but we're not doing a very good job of studying like where it's similar and where it's different and i think we're going to need to broaden that out some to start saying well when you compare us and an eagle or a dolphin or a whale or a chimpanzee or a lion, you know, what are the similarities and, and differences in how this works? And I think that will also then be, well, what happens when it's a silicon substrate? You know, right. do we think that consciousness requires a biological substrate? If so, why? And, you know, part of how, of course, we get to understand each other's consciousness is we we get this depth of experience where I realize it isn't, you're just a, you know, a puppet, <laughs> you know. I am. I am just a puppet. You know? <laughs> well, we're, we're talking to each other through Riverside. So, you know, who knows, right? You know, deep fakes and all that. But the AI's uh, already ahead of you. You know, I'm just, uh, it's already, uh, no. Yeah. But I think we're going to have to get more sophisticated on that question. Now, I think it's, it's too trivial to say because it can mimic language in particularly interesting ways. And it says, yes, I'm conscious, that that makes it conscious. Like, that's not what we use as an instance. And, and part of it is like, do you understand, like part of how we, we, we've come to understand each other's consciousness is we realize that we experience things in similar ways. We feel joy in similar ways. We feel pain right. in similar ways. And that kind of stuff. And that's part of how we, we begin to understand. And I think it'll be really good that this may kick off kind of us being slightly less kind of call it narcissistically anthropocentric in this right. and a broader concept as we look at this. I was talking to my therapist the other day and I was saying, you know, oh, I did this like kind gesture, but I didn't feel like some profound, like, I don't, it just seemed like the right thing to do. I did it. I felt like did the right thing. Should, you know, shouldn't I feel like more around it? And, you know, her perspective is much more like, oh, what matters is like doing the thing, not sort of your internal states about it, which to me would go to the if the machine can can do all the things we expect from sort of a caring type type machine. Like, why do we need to spend all this time when we don't even expect that of humans to always feel the right feelings? Well, I totally uh, agree with you. Look, I think the real question is what you do. Now, that right. being said, part of how we predict what you do is that, you know, you may not have like at that moment gone, ha ha, I think of myself as really good because I've done this kind thing, which by the way, might be a better human thing as right. opposed to like, right. you know, the, I, I'm doing this because I'm better than most people. You know, it's right. like, no, 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 no I'm no, doing the this. This efficient grief that maybe I should have felt for the night, you know, I, you know what I mean? But, yeah, anyway. but, but like, it's the pattern in which you engage in these things and part of the feelings and so forth is because that creates a kind of a reliability of pattern of, do you see other right. people? Do you have the aspiration to have not just yourself, but the people around you leading better and improving lives. And obviously, if that's the behavior that we're seeing from these things, then that's a lot of it. And the only question is, is what is that forward-looking momentum on it? And I think, you know, amongst humans, that comes to an intention, a model of the world, and so forth. You know, amongst, amongst machines, that just maybe the, no, no, we're aligned well. Like, we've done a really good alignment right. with human progress. Do you think there will be a point in time where it's like an ethical problem to unplug it? Like I think of like a bear, right? Like a bear oh. is dangerous. You know, there are circumstances where we're pretty comfortable killing the bear. But if the bear like 
hasn't actually done anything. We've taken it under our care. Mm -hmm. Like we don't just like shoot bears at zoos, you know, and it costs us money to sustain the bear at a zoo. Mm -hmm. Do you think there are cases where we might say, oh man, now there's an ethical question around unplugging some. I think it's a when, not an if. Yeah. Right. I mean, now it may be a when, once again, just like AGI, that's a fair ways out. Right. But it's a when, not an if. And by yeah. the way, I think that's, again, part of the progress that we make because we think about like, okay, so how should we be treating – because, you know, like, for example, if you go back 100, 150 years, the whole concept of animal rights doesn't exist in right. human – you know, it's like, hey, you want to – you want to torture animal X to death, you know, you're, you're allowed to do that. That's an odd right. thing for you to do. Right. And maybe it's kind of like, like distasteful, like grungy, bad in some way. But, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, like, okay, boys, now you're like, oh, that person is, is like going out to try to go torture animals. We should like get them in an institution. Right. <laughs> right. Like that's right. not okay. And I think that you know we like what are what is that further progress for the rights and lives and I think it will ultimately come to things that we think are when it gets to kind of like things that have their own agency and have their own you know kind of um consciousness and 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 sense of existence we should be including all of that in some grand or elevated you know kind of rights conceptions. All right. So back to my listeners who, you know, want to know where to invest and make money off this. And, you know, don't it care isn't from quality and consciousness. Oh, wait. <laughs> I mean, who do you who do you think are like the key players in the models? And then obviously there are more sort of I don't know if we're calling them vertical solutions or product oriented or whatever, however you think about them. But starting with the models, like who do you see as sort of the real players right now? Are you counting out a Google or do you think they'll still you know, sort of show up? Oh, no, I Amazon? think Google will show up. And obviously, you know, OpenAI and Microsoft has done a ton of stuff. I co-founded Inflection last year with Mustafa Suleiman. We yeah. obviously, you know, think we have a just, you know, amazing team. And, and you know, I do see a lot of teams. And I, that's I, to build sort of the foundational tools. Yeah, they're going to, well, they're building their own models and they're going to build some things off those models. Uh, we haven't really said what they are yet, but that's obviously going to be kind of new models. Adept, right. another Greylock Investments building its own models. Character is building its own models. Anthropic is building its own models. And Anthropic is, you know, I think because, you know, Dario and the crew is smart folks from OpenAI, they're, they're doing stuff within a kind of a similar research program that OpenAI is doing. And so I think those are the ones that I probably most track. Character is an interesting case. And, you know, we're still learning more about that company. You know, I was first to report they were looking to raise $250 million dollars. Mm -hmm. My understanding is that what's interesting is they're building the models, but then for a particular use case, right? Or like, it's really a question of leverage mm -hmm. or like, do people need to build the models to be competitive? Or do you think there will be, you know, well, you might, you know, a skin or whatever, whatever, you know, building on, can you build a great business on top of stability or open AI, or do you need to do it yourself? I, That's the question. I think you can, but the way you do it is you can't say it's because I have unique access to the model. It has to be... Right. You know, I have a business that has network effects, or I'm well integrated in enterprise, or I have another deep stack of technology that I'm bringing into it. It can't just be I'm a lightweight front end to it, right. because then other people can be the lightweight front end. So you can build great businesses, I think, with it. I do think that people will both build businesses off, you know, things like the OpenAI APIs, and I think people will also train models. 
Because I think one of the things that will definitely happen is a lot of, you know, like also not just will large models be built in ways that are, I think, interesting and compelling, but I think a bunch of smaller models will be built that are specifically Hmm. tuned and so forth. And there's all kinds of reasons, everything from you can build them to do something very specific, but also like inference cost, does it... Does it run on a low compute or low power footprint, right. you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, AI doctor, AI tutor, you know, duh, and on a cell phone. And so, you know, I think the short answer to this is all. <laughs> right. Do you think we are in a compute arms race still, or do you think this is going to continue where it's just, if you can raise a billion dollars to to buy sort of com- GPU access, basically, from Microsoft or Amazon or Google, you're, you're going to be sort of pretty far ahead? Or how do you think about that sort of the money and computing race shaping out? So there's kind of two lines of trends. There's one line, which is the larger and larger models, which, by the way, you say, well, okay, so it's the scale compute and 1x flop goes to 2x flops. And does your performance function go up by, and it doesn't have to go up by 100% or, or 2x or plus 1x. It could go up by 25%, but sometimes that really matters. Coding, doctors, you know, legal, other things. Well, it's like actually impacted... Even though it's twice as expensive, a 25% increase in, you know, twice as expensive for commute, the 25% increase in performance is worth it. And I think you then have a large-scale model, like a set of things that are kind of going along, you know, need to be using the large-scale models. Then I think there's a set of things that don't have that that need. And, like, for example, that's one of the reasons I wasn't really uh, surprised at all by the profusion of image generation because those are, you know, generally speaking, trainable for a million to $10 million dollars. I think there's going to be a range of those. I think, you know, maybe someone will figure out how to do, you know, a $100 million version. And once they figure out how to do the $100 million version, someone else will figure out how to do the $30 million version of the $100 right. million version. And so I think there's a second line. That's capitalism. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and there's a second line going on where all of these other smaller models will fit into interesting businesses. And then I think a lot of people will either deploy an open source model that they're using themselves, train their own model, get a special deal with kind of a like a model provider or something else as a, as a way of doing it. And so I think the, the short answer is there will be on both. And you have to be looking at this from what's the specific that, I, that this business is doing. You know, the classic issues of, you know, how do you go to market? How do you create a competitive mode? What are the things that give you real enduring value that people will pay for in some way in a business? All of those questions still apply, but there's going to be a panoply of answers depending on the different models of how it plays out. Do you think spend on this space in terms of computing will be larger in 24? Yes. And then larger in 25? Yes. Unquestionably. Okay, so we're on the, yes. we're still on the ramp. Oh yes. Unquestionably. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> great for a certain company that you're on the, the board of. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. Um, well, and it's not just great for Microsoft. There are these other ones, you know, uh, AWS, Google, but yes. Right. <laughs> it does feel like Amazon somewhat sleepy here. Do you have any view there? Well, or? I think they have begun to realize, what I've heard from the market is that they've begun to realize that they should have some stuff here. I don't think they've yet gotten fully underway. I think they are trying to train some large language models themselves. I don't know if they have even realized that there is a skill to training those large language models. Because, like, you know, sometimes people say, well, you just turn on and you run the large language model, the, the training regime that you read in the papers, and then you make stuff. We've seen a lot of failures right. of people trying to build these things and failing to do so. So, you know, there's there's an expertise that you learn in doing it as well. And so I, if, I, I think... If, 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 sorry to interrupt. Oh, no. If Microsoft is around OpenAI and 
Google is around Anthropic, is Amazon going to be around stability? That, that's <laughs> that's sort of the question that I'll put out to the world. I don't know if you have it. I, I certainly don't know anything. <laughs> and in the case of, uh, you know, very, very, very um, uh, politely said, um, Anthropic and OpenAI have scale with huge models. Stability yeah. is all small models. So, right. yeah, interesting. I don't think I've asked you sort of directly about sort of stepping off the open AI board or what. I mean, I would assume mm. you would prefer to be on the board or, you know. Yeah. Well, so look, it was a funny thing because, you know, I was getting more and more requests from various Greylock portfolio companies because we've been investing in, in AI stuff for over five years, like real AI, not just the, we call it soft, we call software AI, but actual right. AI companies. And I was getting more and more requests to do it. And I was like, going, oh, you know, you know, what I did before was like, well, here's the channel. You're like, here's the guy, who, the person who handles the API request, just go talk to them. Like, why can't you help me? I was like, well, I'm, I'm on the board. I have a responsibility right. to not do, be doing that. And then I realized that, oh shit, it's going to look more and more like I might have a real conflict of interest here, even as we really carefully navigating it. And I was like, look, it's really important because, you know, various forces are going to kind of try to question the, frankly, super deep integrity of open AI. It's like, look, I, Sam, I think it might be best, even though look, I remain a fan, an ally to helping, I think it may be best for open AI and generally to step off the board to avo avoid a, a conflict of interest. And, you know, we talked about a bunch and said, okay, fine, we'll do it. And, you know, I obviously, like I had dinner with Sam last night and most of what we were talking about was, you know, kind of the the range of, okay, what's going on and what are the important things that open eyes can right. solve and how should we be interfacing with governments so that governments understand what are the key things that, they, that should be in the mix and what great future things for humanity are really important not to fumble in the, in the generally, like everyone going, oh, I'm worrying, I'm worrying, I'm worrying. And, you know, we're talking about all that stuff. And then I said, oh, I got a question for you. He's like, yeah, okay. He's like, now that I'm no longer on the board, could I ask you to personally look at unblocking my portfolio companies <laughs> thing to the API? Because right, I couldn't right. ever ask you that question before. Right. That was unethical. Um, right. Now I'm not on the board. So can I ask the question? He's like, sure, I'll right. look into it. I'm like, great. Right. <laughs> right. And that's the substance of it, which I never would have done before. But that wasn't why. I mean, I, I obviously love Sam it and was, the OpenAI team. So the fact that you're sort of a democratic super donor was that in the calculus or oh because, i mean we are seeing republican <laughs> no. well i i didn't think that at all coming into yeah. this conversation but just hearing what you're saying the government's looking at it and now it feels like republicans are like trying to find something to be angry about with, well with these ai thing i don't the, quite understand the unfortunate the thing about the most vociferous of the republican media ecosystem is they just invent fiction right like their hallucination you, full out right right <laughs> i mean it just like i mean the amount of just like you know 2020 election denial and all the rest which you can tell from having their text released from fox news and like here right. are these people who are on camera going on oh, we have a question about you know what happened in the election and they're texting each other going oh my god this is insane this is a coup <laughs> da -da -da. Right. and you're like okay anyway so so all like they don't require truth to generate right. heat and friction and right. sleaze. So that was, wasn't that. No, no, it's just really, it's, it's, it's kind of the question of part of the thing, like it's when you're serving on a board, you have to understand what your mission is very deeply and, and to navigate it. And part of the 501c3 boards 
is to say, look, I contribute by being a board member and helping and navigate various circumstances and all the rest. But like, for example, I can continue to be a counselor and an aide to the company, right. not being on the board. Right. And one of the things I think is going to be very important for the next X years for the entire world to know is that OpenAI takes its ethics super seriously. Right. As do I. But how does course. that fit with having invest? I mean, I, obviously, there are lots of companies that do great things. They have investors. I believe in companies probably more than personally, I believe in like charities to accomplish things. But I, the, the duality of OpenAI is extremely confusing. Like, did Greylock itself invest a lot or you invested early as an angel? I was, I was, the, guys, I was the yeah. founding investor as an angel as a program related investment from my foundation. Yeah. Because, like I started, I was among the first people to make a philanthropic donation to OpenAI, just straight out, you know, here's a grant, buy one, say three. And then Sam and crew came up with this idea for doing this commercial LP, and I said, look, I, I'll help, and I have no idea if if this will be an interesting economic investment. They didn't have a business plan, they didn't have a revenue plan, they didn't have a product plan. I brought it to Greylock, we talked about it, and they said, look... We think this will be possibly a really interesting technology, but, you know, part of our responsibility to our LPs, which, you know, includes a whole bunch of universities and else, we invest in businesses. And there is right. no business plan, right? So is that the wrong Kosla did? Kosla's yeah. like, we invested <laughs> wild things yeah. anyway, we don't care. That's sort of what Vinod wants to project anyway, yes. so yeah. Yes, that's exactly the same. So I put them 50, and then I think he was the only venture fund investing in that round. Yeah. But like, there was no business plan. There was no revenue model. There was right. no go-to-market. Right. There was no, like, Well, Sam anything. basically says, someday we're going to have AGI, and we're going to ask it how to make a bunch of money. Like, is he, that's a joke, right? Or like, how much is he joking? It's not a 100% joke, and it's not a 0% joke. It's a question around the mission is really about how do we get to AGI or as close to AGI as useful and to make it useful to humanity. And by the way, the closer you get to AGI, the more interesting technologies fall out, including the ability to have the technology itself solve various problems. So if you said we have a business model problem, it's like, well, ask the, ask the thing. Now, if you currently sit down and ask, you know, chat GBT what the business model is, you'll get something pretty vague and generic that right. wouldn't get you a meeting with a venture capitalist because it's like the we will have ad supported you're like okay <laughs> right uh, don't you have a company that's trying to do pitch decks now or something oh yeah tome no and it's <laughs> awesome but by the way that's the right kind of thing because because what it does is you say hey give me a, a set of tiles together with images and graphics and things arguing x and then you start working with the ai to improve it say oh i need a slide that does this and i need a catch your headline here and right. and you know da 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 and then you, and you obviously you can edit it yourself and so on. so that's that's the kind of amplification now you don't say give me my Figure business model <laughs> right <laughs> right you're like i have this business model like articulated yeah, yeah right. exactly politics i mean i feel like silicon valley you know has like worked on everybody be able to you know everybody can get along there's sort of competition but then you sort of still stay close to any, everybody like yeah, you you especially like are good. You know, you you're in the PayPal mafia with a lot of people who are fairly very conservative now. The Trump years broke that in some ways. And did you maintain those relationships? I see headlines that say you're friends with Peter Thiel. What's the state of your friendship with Peter Thiel, and how how did it survive? I guess the Trump years is the question. Well, I think the thing that Peter and I learned when we were undergraduate Stanford together is it's very important to because we we you know I was. I was I was a lefty. He was a righty. We'd argue a lot um, to maintain conversation and to argue yeah. things. Um, you know, it, no lie, it's difficult to argue on things that feel existential and 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 is 
ethically challenged is things right. around Trump. You know, the you know, Trump feels to be a you know, a corrosive acid upon our democracy that is right. disfiguring us and staining us to the world. And right. so to have a dispassionate argument about it is is challenging. And you know, so you have right. you, you know, it ends up with some uneven ground and statements like, I can't believe you're fucking saying that as part of dialogue. Um, But on the other hand, you know, maintaining dialogue is, I think, part of how we make progress as society. And, and, you know, I basically am uh, sympathetic to people as long as they are legitimately and earnestly and committed to the dialogue and discussion of truth between them. Right. And, and not committed otherwise. And so, you know, there, there are folks from the PayPal years that I, don't really spend much time talking to. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and um, there are others that I do continue because that conversation of discovering who we are and who we should be is really important. And you can't allow your own position to be the definer. It almost goes back to the, what we were talking about, the AI side, which is make sure you're talking to other smart people who challenge you to make right. sure you're doing the right thing. Um, and that's, I think, a good general life principle. I feel like part of what my dream of like the Silicon Valley world is that we have these, you know, we have Twitter is like the open forum. We're having sincere sort of on the level debates, but then you see something like, you know, you, the Fox you don't think it's messages. the modern Seinfeld show I got, or not Seinfeld, um, Springer, Jerry Springer, Oh, <laughs> you know, like the, yeah, that's you're right. But at least I just feel like the sort of like, if the arguments are on the level issue is my problem with some of the sort of, I don't know, yeah. Peter Thiel arguments Look, that he's not actually publicly advancing his beliefs in a sincere way. And that that's almost more corrosive. than Oh, that's totally corrosive. And as much as that's happening, it's terrible. And that's one of the things that I, you know, in conversations I have, I push people, including Peter on a lot. Yeah. Are you still, are you still going to donate a lot or what was, what's your, are you as animated about the democratic party and working through sort of donor channels at the moment? Well, what I would say is I think that we have a responsibility to try to make like with, it's kind of the Spider-Man ethics. With with power comes responsibility. With wealth comes responsibility. And you have to try to help contribute to what is the better society that we should be living and navigating in. And so I'm I I stay committed on that basis. And I do think there are some really amazing people in the administration. I think Biden is kind of a, a good everyday guy, um, yeah. which I think is actually in fact good for trying to build bridges in the country. I think there are people like Secretary Raimondo and Secretary Buttigieg who are thinking intensely about technology and kind of what to be done in the future. And I think there's other folks. Now, I think there's a bunch of folks on the Democratic side that I think are more concerned with their demagoguery than they are with the right thing in society. And so I tend to be, you know, unsympathetic to, um, you know, kind of the... You know, Michael Moritz at Sequoia, I think, just wrote an op-ed sort of criticizing San Francisco government you know and there's there's certainly this sort of i don't know you know the woke critique of the democratic party or yeah i'm I'm curious if there's there's a piece of it sort of outside of the the governance that you're um well i definitely like you know now i find the kind of the interesting thing around woke is like well we're anti-woke and you're like well don't you think being awake is a good thing i mean it's a funny thing right um, but the and sort of the ill-defined nature of woke is yes. like key to the allegation exactly. because it's like, oh, what what's the substantive thing you're saying there? And you know, yes. I mean, we're seeing Elon tweet about race right now, which is sort of a terrifying. Anyway, yeah. yeah. And so I think that the question on this stuff is to try to say, look, 
people have a lot of different views and a lot of different things, and some of those views are are bad, especially in kind of minority and need to be advocated against in various ways. Part of why we like democracy is to have discourse. I'm very concerned about the status of public discourse. And obviously, most people tend to focus that around social media, which obviously has some legitimate things that we need to talk about. But on the other hand, they don't track like these like opinion shows, kind of like Fox News that represent themselves implicitly as news shows and saying, and this is the following thing, like there's election fraud in 2020. And then when they're sued for the various forms of defamation, they say, we're just an entertainment show. We don't do anything like news. So we we have that within that. We're already struggling on a variety of these issues within society. Uh, yeah. And we, I think we need to sort them all out. Is there anything on the AI front that we missed or that I should ask that you wanted to make sure to talk about? I think we covered so much great ground. Yeah. Well, and we can do it again, right? You know, it's, yeah. it's great. I love it. I mean, yeah. I love it. I mean, I do think, yeah, I mean, this was a great, <laughs> all the things you're interested in, I'm interested in. So is is great. I really enjoyed having you on the podcast and thank, thanks for Likewise. And I follow the stuff you do and it's, it's, it's cool and keep doing it. Thank you. That's our episode. Thanks for listening. Shout out to our editor, Tommy Heron, my chief of staff, Riley Kinsella, Young Chomsky, who made wonderful music. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode. If you have feedback, send it to me at eric at newcomer.co. I always love scoops and tips. And please rate, like, comment, subscribe, do all the things. There's a brand new podcast, and I sincerely would appreciate your support all over the interwebs. Thank you. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.